0: Welcome back to University of Minnesota Extension's Nutrient Management Podcast. I'm your host, Paul McDivitt, Communications Specialist here at U of M Extension. Today on the podcast, we're talking about wheat nutrient management. We have two members of Extension's Nutrient Management Team and Dave Franzen from North Dakota State University. Can you each give us a quick introduction?
1: This is Daniel Kaiser. I'm a Nutrient Management Specialist at the St. Paul campus with the University of Minnesota. One of my areas um, I've been involved with um, in conjunction with Yochum has been um, nutrient management research on uh, small grains, specifically hard red spring wheat and some um, hard red winter wheat um, here in the state of Minnesota. Uh,
2: I'm Yochum Wiersma, the state extension agronomist at the University of Minnesota. All things small grains, including nitrogen management uh, predominantly uh, with research both at the Northwest Research and Outreach Center and collaboration with uh, Dan Kaiser. And I'm Dave
3: Franz and I'm a Extension Soil Specialist at NDSU across the river and I constructed the new revised wheat recommendations and the nitrogen calculator for wheat in Durham. Great, so
0: starting off, why is nitrogen important for wheat production?
1: We know with uh, most annual crops um, that nitrogen really is a key when it comes to maximizing yield. So whether it's um, wheat or other small grains, oats, barley, rye, as well as corn, we know that the majority of our soils aren't going to have enough nitrogen to supply that crop to maximize yield. Um, The challenging aspect uh, when it comes to small grains, though, comes from the protein side, because that's one of the things that proteins are comprised of amino acids, which are comprised of nitrogen. So when we're dealing with crops, specifically um, small grains, when there's a protein premium on, or a discount on them, nitrogen management becomes critical uh, to make sure one we're making yield and also making proteins. So really looking at kind of the main two with those, um, really it's it's the yield and the protein aspect. That's one of the things that makes it unique compared to some of the other crops.
2: And and the, the thing is, that- in the market, we have, in a way, a, a very artificial system, in that uh, the market, in the case of hard red spring wheat, is set all around 14% for hard red spring wheat. Uh, for winter wheat, it's a little bit different, but that's the challenge. Mother nature now and then gives us different growing conditions, and that really changes the relationship between grain yield, grain protein, and what the end product is, and We have to make recommendations before we know what grain fill is going to be and the conditions during grain fill are going to be. And that makes nitrogen management in the case of of spring wheat extremely challenging.
1: And now, one of the other things, too, Yoakam, that you look at a lot is this this linkage between yield and protein in varieties. And I know that's kind of an important thing because when you stack up everything against each other, when you look at the breeding programs, um, we see differences in how these varieties can accumulate their nitrogen, some may put it into starch production, some may put it into protein production. And that's kind of one of the things that I find interesting when you're looking at the management involved with um, small grains, particularly uh, wheat is much more challenging when you're trying to marry those two up. Um, you have growers really looking at uh, multiple factors when they're selecting their varieties and not just looking at the yield numbers from the from the trials to give them kind of a, an aspect of what they want. and um, I don't know, Joachim, in terms of the, what well, you do a lot of work north and south, north and south, southern Minnesota, we see a lot of differences too. And where I see in terms of nitrogen response between those two areas, I mean, you'd see a lot of difference too in terms of what the best varieties between those two regions, just based on just yield and protein in the trials.
2: We, we see definitely rank changes where we see certain varieties, you know, do better overall and bubble to the top for southern Minnesota. Um, the relationship, when it comes to grain protein and grain yield, we have somewhat of a year effect in, in a way that goes north-south. Some years early maturity, really we see an advantage with some of the South Dakota weeds for higher protein where the, the later maturing weeds just don't do as well. But it the really the interesting portion to me being trained as a geneticist is indeed, varieties do differ in how they Partition in a way the nitrogen uh, at the end of the season and where it ends up, um, or how and I don't know. If it's if the right term is really nitrogen use efficiency, but how much of the nitrogen ends up in the grain? If you look at a variety trial, um, it's it's you know in the literature there's some really interesting work done with some work that started in North Dakota with uh, GPC, what's called GPC B one, the high protein. Uh, gene or allele uh, that came out of some wild relatives that impart higher grain protein in certain genetic backgrounds. And the more I've been looking at that together with Albert Sims is that in a way I've shifted my paradigm to where we now look at basically, they're not necessarily higher protein varieties, they're just don't put as much starch in So they don't dilute the amount of protein that they produce per acre uh, with as much starch. That's a different way of looking at the same information. Um, And that makes it challenging uh, on how to manage that. We don't make variety specific recommendations yet. Uh, We we have a trial underway where we look at indeed, whether or not that allele indeed imparts something unique to where we can change that in our end recommendations. I'm not anywhere close to that. Um, but it, it remains challenging uh, because starch, most of that is, the, is created and made during grain fill. 80% of that is made during the grain fill period. Only 20% is basically stuff that gets recycled out of the plant into that, into that kernel. And you can't predict that in March when you put up your fertility plan. And so I'm scratching my head often a lot. Afterwards, I can always explain things. That doesn't make it a management tactic.
0: What makes managing nitrogen more challenging for wheat than for corn?
1: Well, you know, we look at corn is, um, you know, corn is less sensitive to overapplication, and that's one of their main challenges. And it's one thing that I've seen particularly um, if you look at dividing our research up between the northern and the southern part of the states is one of the issues we, we suffer really, are we risk with excess um, N application with small grains is lodging. And um, I know that's probably the major challenge that most growers are facing, because if it's just simply as we could just put enough nitrogen on or more a little more nitrogen on than we, we think we need just to make sure we make protein, that's one thing, but there's a significant risk then that the wheat won't be standing at the end of the season, and that's one of the main things. I mean, I look at a lot of our data. Um, the recommendations right now in Minnesota, we still use a yield goal based system, which I'm I'm going to have Dave follow up a little bit on some of the changes they've done at North at NDsu with the, their recommendations. Um, but ours has kind of been long standing a yield goal based system, particularly for the northern part of the state, where we take into account a certain factor times our yield goal minus previous crop end credits minus what we have in the residual soil nitrate. And if I look at that type of recommendation um, versus Southern Minnesota, where we have a table-based recommendation, which is just a set amount, which is still yield goal-based, the numbers are quite different. And one of the things that I see pretty consistently uh, across the two locations is, one is there's a a pretty big difference in yield potential. And I think a lot of that yokem is heat. I I mean, wheat doesn't necessarily like warm nights, the way I understand it. And um, if you look at it, I mean, consistently across our sites, I mean, I, when we did our, a lot of our testing, I could count on between 15 and 60 bushels. And one thing that we saw in the south is that we were never really, when Joachim talked about that 14% protein level, we were never under that. So we could see kind of that the the wheat was more yield limited in those sites, when it was putting more of the nitrogen and protein in at those given locations versus a complete opposite effect up in the north where we're getting higher yields and lower protein content. So I mean that's really the the challenge is managing it to the point at which and what we really saw in the south or about half of our plots on the ground lodged um, making sure that we don't get to that lodging issue or get that I means that can be a significant issue when it comes to yield loss if you can't get the grain through the header and um that's probably, I think, number one on my end when I look at it. I mean, really, the challenge is with corn over application, Really, there's no penalty, but with bean or with um, beans um, and also crops like wheat, uh, where you get more vegetative growth, we can get into some issues with, with particularly with lodging if we get to too much vegetative growth with those crops.
0: Dave, what was the rationale behind recent changes to the wheat nitrogen guidelines in North Dakota?
3: Well, I, I worked on these uh, around uh, 10 years ago or so. And, and so I was um, I was aware of the movement that Minnesota and other states moved to with the uh, maximum return to N or the economic optimum N rate. And, and none of those were yield-based. And, and it was kind of in my background also that uh, because of my precision ag work and work with sensors, that uh, Bill Ron at, at Oklahoma State had found this quite a while ago, is that there's really no relationship. And so, one of the things I, I did was, uh, of course, take the take the yields from each of the sites and try to construct some kind of a yield response curve. But the but the relationship was really poor. But as soon as I standardized the yields within each site and put them all together, all that data collapsed to, on a, on a on a quadratic curve, uh, which is the response curve we get with nitrogen and yield, and and, um, and and that told me that yield yield between sites and nitrogen rate didn't make any sense, and and so I I didn't do that. So I constructed an economic production function, just like uh, George Reem and Dan Kaiser have in Minnesota and others, and. Uh, but wheat is a little bit different, as you've already talked about, that you have to consider the protein, too. And so there was a response of protein to nitrogen as well as a response of yield in nitrogen. And so you had to take both of those response equations into account in order to get the economics of it. And so so I built that in. I put uh, twice as twice as much dock into the equation as I did um, protein premiums because we always get a dockage for low protein. Protein, but we, um, you know, only sometimes we get a premium for it, and and there was an upper limit to the protein in there too, and I can't remember if it was 15 or 16 percent. But at one of those percentages, I didn't give any more of a credit because the elevators don't either. So that was that was one of the things. The other thing was dividing up uh, the state, and and Dan apparently is considering this too with his north and south discussion here a little bit ago. So so we have three regions in North Dakota, and that's because The response curves within those regions uh, were different than the other two regions so there's Langdon area which is weird and then uh, the rest of eastern North Dakota and then West River should be well it's just drier out there drier and hotter so uh, those are our responses so the so so we asked the growers to to handle that And, and another thing and we're the only state in the country maybe the you know the only maybe the only time in the world that this appears in the recommendations. But when I first came here 26 years ago, I talked to a lot of no-till, long-term no-till farmers out in a big conference that they had out at Minot. And, and they told me they didn't follow NDSU nitrogen recommendations anymore. And I asked them why, and they said, well, after they'd been in no-till for a while, they, they found that they could start shaving rates and they've shaved them so much. And at that time, some of them were over 20 years of no-till continuous. That it didn't resemble NDSU recommendations anymore, and so I remembered the conversation when I, when I got ready to do the final stages of getting ready to publish. Uh, I took the sites and I divided them out between those that were long-term no-till and those that aren't, and they were right that, that it, at least with the weed, it, it took 50 pounds of N less to grow that crop and to grow at least as good a protein and at least as good a yield as it did in the conventional till, and so. So we ask for a tillage click you know if you're a long-term no-till if you're just a hobby no-tiller just one or two years three four five before the biology really changes before things really change uh, in the soil and they do uh, then it actually takes more in and that's built into the calculator as well but long-term no-till gets a credit and that's in the calculator so the, the the other thing that we put in there, and and I did it mainly because of what Jochem was talking about, with some varieties push more nitrogen into the yield, and some push more into the protein. Protein is that there's a plus or minus 30 pounds of N at the end. at the, At the end, there's a number, but it's not the final number. So the final number is up to the up to the grower, and and that at least in wheat is because if you have a stronger protein variety, then shaving the nitrogen rate is probably just fine. And if you have a variety that struggles with protein, then and up to 30 pounds of N could help that reach uh, a protein goal that's pretty close to what the market is. And and that was new at the time. So so those, that, that's what I did. It's all number driven. It wasn't just, I woke up in the middle of the night and thought this would be cool. Uh, the numbers told me that this is what I needed to do. So I did it.
1: So Dave, did you have any challenges? Um, you know, one of the things that I had trouble with when we looked at some of the Minnesota data was with the uh, protein response to nitrogen data. So what I did is when I started looking at it, I started back calculating it. Something I know that Yocham's done is looking at a protein production per acre and calculated it based on pounds of total protein produced and then rec- then back calculated based on the yield, the, um, the actual protein percentage. Because so the challenge I had was getting we had a lot of differences across the sites in terms of the, the protein percentage that I wasn't getting a clear curve that it was predictable enough that I could use for the economic model. And that was kind of the, I think the main challenge because I've looked at the same thing. I like this model. It was just the protein was the hardest part to work out. I think with it, I mean, if it's like I said, corn is easy. We don't worry about protein. So it just yield and that's one one uh, model, but then you're starting to factor in. And that's one of the things the MRTN can do. You can factor other things into it, whether it's a, some sort of benefit or some sort of something negative, like a discount, to recalculate what your, your MRTN value is. And I think protein was the, the, probably, for me, the most challenging part of this when it came to the coming up with that model. So I don't know what your experience in terms of um, when you were working with that, what, that protein response, how that kind of fit in.
3: Well, I had, I had protein depending on the end rate and where you were from anywhere from 10% to 20% and 20% in the drought in the West and uh, it was, it was pretty linear, actually and so I really didn't struggle with it all that much. Um, I don't like I had to struggle with it at all you, you came out with a within within each region you came out with a, a, a relationship and then you factored that relationship into the into the table. The only thing that I did do was, as I, as I said, I, I topped it out, I think it was around 15%, so about 15%, I just, I didn't give any more credit to anything greater than 15%, because I didn't figure that in almost every year that the farmer would get any more credit for 16 than they got for 15.
1: Yeah, how often do you usually see a premium on protein? Uh, I mean, I said I more commonly hear discounts. They don't necessarily always hear premiums uh, on protein.
3: When you have really good yields down in Kansas and Texas and all those, the proteins are down, and that's when the premiums hit. Um, I don't know, since I've been here, maybe one out of three years.
2: Yeah, the, the rule in marketing is whatever you have in the bin is what they don't want. You know, because we are in a commodity system, so everybody in the same geography pretty much produces something that's within a certain, you know, standard deviation up or down from that. Um, As I listened to, you know, some of the ag economists, the discounts in Northwest Minnesota are not necessarily a function of what happens in Kansas, but what happens in Western North Dakota when shuttle trains go from the valley west to Portland, if we are at 13, 13 and a half as an average, they can pick up something in Minot and make the tender by the time they get to the Portland market and the discounts are gonna be relatively small. If Western North Dakota has a very good year with higher yields and they're struggling to get into that 14 to 15 percent then our discounts get very very large very very quickly premiums are like dave said one in three years and they're often dissipate quickly after the market kind of figures out what's where um and so it's i think the growers At least my goal for the growers is, you know, max out on yield, tickle 14. That's when you, I think, um, have probably the best economic returns year in, year out.
1: So where do you think, Joachim, a lot of the growers up north, I mean, since we started a lot of this, it seems like some of them have become more aggressive on their nitrogen, um, because it always kind of seemed to me a lot of them were, you know, looking at maybe around 60 to 80 uh, yield goal. And, you know, what it's one of, one of the interesting things that I've seen with a lot of the information. So if you look at the total that we recommend, roughly three quarters of what we recommend really goes towards maximizing yield. And then, it, like for what I've seen, it's been an additional 50 pounds or more than we've needed um, for a lot of our work. If we need 150 pounds to maximize yield, than 200 pounds to maximize protein. And it seems like I'm hearing more talk of growers getting a little more aggressive up in that area with um, their nitrogen just to try to make sure they make protein because a couple of years that we were running faller back in 08 and 09, I mean, we were touching 100, 100 plus bushel, but we we're only pushing really about 13% protein or at best, I think, in some of those fields. And it seems like... Um, Seeing a grower, a few more growers become more aware of this and get a little more aggressive in what they're doing.
2: Yes, growers have definitely gotten more aggressive uh, in the valley overall with wheat uh, and that includes the use of fungicides uh, you know as well to keep you know that crop healthy the, And part of that is a function simply because wheat is can be substituted. you know we can go to corn. Uh, we can go to other crops. And so they look at wheat not as, you know, wheat no longer uh, sets the rents. That that's, that ship sailed probably 30 years ago uh, after the freedom to farm bill, you know, basically the, in the early nineties or the mid nineties started. and And so wheat really is a rotational partner And they like to keep it especially if they're sugar beet growers but they want it to pencil and so they've they've gotten more aggressive in part to get those higher yields and they pick varieties that are higher yielding and they understand that if you you know that requires nitrogen and so yield goals um of 80 to 100 uh, if we have an earlier season uh, are not uncommon with with growers that have have that experience and are are comfortable with it and pick the varieties that can handle that because as you been pointed out, certain varieties will go down flat and that's the first thing I will hear about a variety when we talk about variety selection, nobody likes to slow down during harvest.
3: It's not only that, it's the, the thing that's, of course that's a, just kind of a pain, but but if I see a, but if I see a field and only part of it is kind of down at harvest, but it was all up all the way through, through flowering, that doesn't bother me as much as, as I see a field that starts going down as soon as the head starts to develop. That yeah. pre-anthesis lodging is just a killer, especially in a wet year. You get more scab, uh, you get more disease, you get horrible quality. It, it, it's 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 a killer. So you really have to avoid that. What are the
0: best management options for ensuring high wheat yields that maintain protein near 14%?
1: Well, I think, I mean, for me, is dialing in the nitrogen as much as possible. I mean, we do have some options um, for protein. If you're, lo- if you're looking at, you know, as Joachim said, some of these higher yielding varieties that might be a little lower on the, on the protein side. Um, I think the main thing a lot of growers, and it seems like I hear a lot of growers doing this, would be um, post-anthesis application of UAN. Um, the data shows anywhere from about a half to maybe a percent increases kind of what you can expect. And I think you'll about a 30, 30 pounds or so of nitrogen. Um, yeah. is we had, look at a no more than that in a single shot or is that a dual shot? Is that two single, shots of it? Of sing, single pounds?
2: shot. Yeah, uh, you know, it, nitrogen, you know, parts of North Dakota, parts of Minnesota still like to apply anhydrous in the fall. Well, it, it, in Minnesota, we still work base it on a yield goal you know and my recommendation for years has been to growers only fertilize in the fall up to your APH your proven yields because that's basically the insurable yield and then in the spring much depends on how we started with the spring we our most productive years are those where we get actually in pretty early and then you know do the best you can, and it doesn't matter that much actually if you follow Dave's recommendations, or or, or stay on this side of the river. And then if you really think that you're short, and, and are looking at possibly discounts, is that that rescue treatment of thirty you know thirty pounds of N as UAN with ten gallons of water over the top as kernel fill starts. I call it the watery ripe stage that's when we see the most productive response. The challenge with that is a it's another pass and B it's it's not you know you don't want to do this during the daytime with 40 mile an hour winds and you know, full sun because it is hard on the crop and it's hard to see your canopy burning up um, because you're applying foliar for uh, you know foliar nitrogen.
1: Yeah. And that's a thing we've seen quite a bit. I mean, that burning potential and then do not mix it with fungicides. I mean, that's, I think one of the, the big things with that. And, um, just again, watch the, the conditions because it's something that could, could be detrimental, but on any of the other nutrients, I mean, we haven't really done a whole lot. Dave, I mean, when you did the potassium guidelines for the corn, did you change some of the recommendations too, for wheat as well?
3: I did. I, I, I upped the ones to, to wheat also. And, um, I, I, the recommendations before were somewhere around 100 ppm because it's not all that responsive to potassium. And I, I bumped up those highly expected soils to 115. And I didn't feel uncomfortable doing that because those usually have corn or soybean or something like that in the rotation or beets or something that, that already has a higher, higher K recommendation anyway. And so I'm just kind of following suit. Yeah,
1: and that's one of the things I think we've seen up in the Red River Valley, particularly with more soybean acreage up there, has been a lowering of the K test. So there's been more questions. I mean, I obviously get more questions with chloride, although, you know, I usually rely on North Dakota's recommendations because I don't have any set guidelines in our recommendations just because those are soils typically that didn't have potash applied, which would apply some chloride. So that was kind of one of the things that um, I might get more questions on. But uh, I have seen a small response at Crookston. Um, we've got a, a wheat-soybean rotation up there um, that's about 150 part per million uh, starting K-test. Um, it's been small, though it's only been roughly a bushel with maybe a, just a small increase in protein on that site. So that's been the thing. And I know, Yokum, you've kind of sent me, I think, some pictures over the last few years of kind of some reported K-deficiency in wheat but it isn't anything that's been, um, you know, widespread that I've seen. And I think targeting crops like soybean makes sense. And if you need the chloride, then you've got potash going on just because you're looking at potassium chloride applications. So it's, the nitrogen has been the big thing we've researched, um, you know, phosphorus. We haven't done that for a while. the responses haven't been, I mean, although we do recommend something for a starter, um, haven't been strong. And, and some of the, I think Albert Sims has had some work that hasn't had any clear responses. So it's been kind of a challenge, um, but um, you know, with some of the changes in the soil test, particularly up in the Northwest region, that's where I'm starting to get more questions on some of these crops, uh, particularly with potassium, since uh, we know that um, the soybean is, the way that can suck potassium out of the soil, it's been uh, seeing some of those soil tests drop in some areas that um, necessarily wouldn't have been an issue if it was just the small grains, mostly in the rotation.
2: You know, the other nutrients, and I'm not the nutrient specialist, but I did do some trials with um, with Albert uh, on phosphorus on some soils that were testing two parts per million on Olsen on a Yulin sand. And you Yeah, you can see it early in the season, and then the moment things warm up, the responses disappear, and it didn't matter how we sliced or diced those applications. The the K deficiency I've seen um, once, and that was where very dry uh, spring, cold spring with, uh, again, it's crossed my house actually, which is indeed also a Yule and sand. Um, and then the heavier soils, I've never seen it. Dave, have you, do you ever see it in the valley or do you have to go further west? Not with
3: wheat, no. I've never seen it in the wheat, so I, you know, the the. I don't get too too fussed about the wheat. I don't really talk about it, even in the edge of the valley where the K test is almost impossible to build up above 120. You know, just uh, small amounts. Um, keep it conservative, and don't bother about building those soils up because they'll never build up.
1: Yeah, and sulfur's been the other one, too, we've looked at. And, you know, outside of some really low organic matter, I had kind of some irrigated wheat on a made close to 2% organic matter. I saw, I mean, a small response. I mean, really, the, the nitrogen's the big thing. I mean, nitrogen management is, is probably the more critical out of, out of all of them because the wheat's a pretty forgiving crop with, with some things. There are some certain circumstances that you may want to look at maybe sulfur. Um, We have recommendations for copper on organic soils. That'd be soils greater than 10% um, organic matter. Um, But nitrogen is really the the critical one. And so that's kind of the thing that I really where the focus has been with research. And that's the reason why, just because of how critical it is.
0: All right, that about does it for the podcast this week. We'd like to thank the Agricultural Fertilizer Research and Education Council, AFRAC, for supporting this podcast.
3: Thanks for listening. (laughs)